We are studying Joshua. Today we're talking about that story of uh, the conquering of Jericho. The walls come down. God fights for his people in a miraculous way. Uh, it is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It's such an exciting story. Turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. At this point in the story, um, a number of things have happened. Number one, God commissioned Joshua to be the leader of his people. Moses had died. First thing Joshua does is spend, send two spies into Canaan to check out the lay of the land. They almost got captured and killed by the king of Jericho, but Rahab, a Canaanite woman, a prostitute in Jericho, hid them, and she switched sides. She wanted to be on God's side, and the, and the uh, spies promised that they, when the Israelites took Jericho, that they would not kill her or her family. Then there is this miracle of God damming up the waters of the Jordan so that his people can cross on dry ground. Uh, they camp in front of, the, of Jericho on the plains, and uh, God asks, tells them to have all the men who had been born in the wilderness during that 40 years of wandering to get circumcised. They hadn't been circumcised. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant, and the people needed to get current with their obedience, and they did that. Uh, they put themselves... Uh, in a sense, at, uh, at physical risk of a counterattack, but they trusted the Lord to take care of him, and he did. Then they celebrated the Passover, and now God gives them the battle plans to take Jericho. I'm going to read this chapter in its entirety, and I'll be making uh, comments as I go along, and then we're going to spend the bulk of the, of the message talking about the application of this text for our lives today. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Joshua. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Jericho had battened down the hatches. They'd closed the gates. They were under siege. They feared the Israelites. And so they were, they were ready to weather the storm. And they were trusting, I'm sure, in their high city walls. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Joshua, see, uh, in Hebrew that is a behold, it's kind of a take notice, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor, and the I have given is a completed tense, it's a done deal. How can it be a done deal when it hasn't yet happened? Because when God decides to do something, it's a done deal. All that matters is the will of God, uh, never the situation on the ground. Verse 3, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. There's the battle plan, unique in all human history. No army has ever employed this battle plan again, because this is not setting human soldiers up to defeat another human army. It's God is going to bring down Jericho. He will fight and overcome it. 
Verse 6, so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them. Now, there's a pattern in Judges where God tells Joshua what he wants the people to do, and then Joshua turns around and tells the people, and the people have to obey Joshua as if they're obeying the Lord. That's the way God is structured leadership at that time with his people. And Joshua is a great leader because he's obedient to the Lord, and he's, he is very fastidious almost in making sure that he tells the people what it is, exactly what God wants them to do. He's learned his lesson from Moses that you can't deviate at all. When God says do X, you do X and only X if you want God's blessing. And so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it was the Ark that uh, when the people carrying the Ark dipped their toes in the water of the uh, Red Sea, boom, it parted. And it was the, uh, the priests hold, bearing the Ark stood in the center of the Jordan River. And it wasn't until they came up that the Jordan flowed again. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God amongst His peoples. And it's, it's, uh, he keeps demonstrating through the prominence of the ark's position in these stories that it is God who is um, doing the fighting and winning these victories. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments written on stone, uh, Aaron's staff that had miraculously budded in front of Pharaoh, and some of the manna with which God had fed his people for 40 years in the wilderness. Priests were descendants of uh, Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, and priests would have been carrying the ark, and then there were seven additional priests in front of the ark blowing ram's horns, which sounds exactly like this. Oh, that was good. And they obviously were not blowing those horns in sync with each other, so it was just this ongoing cacophony. Right? Yes. I wanted you to visualize that and hear it in your own head. Excellent. Excellent. Verse 7, and he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Verse 8, and just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. All right, so we have the picture. The picture is... Uh, there are soldiers in the vanguard. Behind the soldiers are the seven priests blowing the ram's horns. Behind them is the ark being carried by priests. Behind the, uh, the ark is another rear guard of soldiers. And then uh, I presume, because he's told the people, I presume that the rest of the people of Israel are trailing behind that. And they all go do a a loop around the city of Jericho. And I just don't know how large Jericho was at this time, how long it took to do the loop. 
Verse 10, but Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. Verse 10. Now, God hadn't commanded that. He said, just you know, have the people shout on that seventh day after the seventh loop. Uh, this seems to be coming from Joshua. And, you know, taken very literally, it sounds like he's saying, silence in the camp for seven days. I don't want anybody talking at all. Now, why would he do that? I, I think it would be to underscore the fact that we're not fighting this battle. I don't want anybody taunting the you know, people of Jericho or making boasts or this isn't about us. Our job is to do exactly what God told us to do and watch him win this battle. And the only thing he's told us to do other than march is to shout. And so we're not going to overstep our bounds at all. Verse 11, so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. I wonder what those people of Jericho were thinking. I'm sure day one, uh, when Israel, you know, starts to come toward them and, and, uh, and get, starts getting in formation, I bet everyone is on high alert, right? They're watching those Israelites. They're, they're prepared for, for an attack. What are they doing? When are they going to attack? Where, where are they going? Are they going to attack from this side? Wait, wait. They're not attacking. What are they? They're headed back to camp. Maybe they're scared off. And then day two. I mean, they're, they're not throwing rocks at the city's walls with trebuchets. There aren't any Israelites digging tunnels under, trying to sap the walls. They just come and they march around and blow these trumpets. And nobody's even, the people aren't even saying anything. At what point did the people of Jericho let their guard down? Because are we in any danger here? <laughs> if all they're going to do is just walk around blowing trumpets, I guess we could run out of food. There's actually a well that bubbles up in, right in Jericho, so they weren't going to run out of water. Verse 15, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, remember God had said, after seven times around on that, on that final day, make there be a long blast of trumpets. So I, I, I look at the, I, I can visualize those priests looking at each other after they've circuited the seventh time. Ready? Long blast. And that's the, and that's the signal for the people to shout. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given us the city. 
And the next thing I expect to read is, and the people shouted, and the walls came down. But it doesn't. There's some detail that the, uh, the author provides here. He did the same thing to us when we were about to cross the Jordan River. Remember that? He had us right, right to where the Jordan was about to cross, and then he, he gives some more details before he completes the scene. And he does that with us again. He knows he's got us on the edge of our seats, and so he wants to take that opportune moment to impart to us something very important. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 17, Joshua continues, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted. Okay, now those verses, those couple of verses talking about the devoted things are extremely important in this story. So God had laid claim to Jericho. Uh, it was under the ban. It had been declared cherem, uh, which is a very important and special word. God said, Jericho is mine, and everything in Jericho is mine. Uh, this is not the time for looting. None of this belongs to you. It all belongs to me, and I have declared my purposes for it. Every living thing you, you will put to the sword. No animal, no human will be left alive. Everything else, totally destroyed. And what happens is it's burned. The only thing that is preserved, gold and silver, and articles made of iron or bronze. That's the only thing that you can collect, and it goes into the treasury of the Lord. It, it belongs to the, it will be used to keep up the tabernacle, the worship of the Lord. Do not take for yourselves anything in Jericho, uh, because that would be robbing from God, and you're going to bring down uh, the wrath of God, not just upon yourself, but upon all of us. And we're going to actually see next week, Pastor James is going to be preaching on the sin of Achan, Achan. Just couldn't obey the Lord, and his greed got to him, and he, he, he took a gold bar and, and a, a tunic or two. Uh, beautiful. He just coveted them. And, and the wrath of God broke out upon the people of Israel, and thousands of them died. So this was, this was very serious. Now, we'll, talk, we'll unpack that a little bit more uh, as we go. Verse 20, so the people shouted, ah! actually, I don't know how they shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. That last little line there. That's, that's the only part of the story that is devoted to what the people did uh, in the fighting. All, everything else, it's the people just obeying God. Um, and even this was obedience to the Lord. But uh, this is, 
there is very, very real estate, little real estate in this story given to the humans fighting the humans, even though I'm assuming there were sword battles and uh, I don't know how many little skirmishes. We don't even know. Maybe, maybe some Israelites died. I don't know. Uh, because it, this story is not about what the, what the human soldiers did. It's about what God did and God fighting uh, and winning this city. Verse 21 Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Anything that had breath in it was killed. And we'll talk about that in a bit because that's startling. Verse 22, But to the two men who had spied out the land... Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Uh, Joshua is a man of integrity, and he was going to ensure that the, the people of Israel made good on the promise the spies had uh, made with Rahab. They had promised Rahab, if, if you hide us and we are preserved from the king of Jericho, then when we attack Jericho, we will make sure you and anyone in your home will be safe. Now, how are they going to know Rahab's home? Remind me. Scarlet cord out. That's right, out the window. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And we noted a few weeks ago that King David and Jesus Christ are direct descendants of Rahab. So they, they were, she was, uh, fully incorporated into the people of God over time. Verse 24, but they were, make no mistake, it was Rahab and her family, and only, they were the only ones who survived uh, Jericho. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. So this story was written down years later, you know, after the fact. And Rahab, or at least Rahab's descendants, are still living in in Israel, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho, which is essentially, it was treasonous against Jericho, it was switching sides, right? She threw her lot in with the people of God. Verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, cursed before the Lord, Be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. God wanted Jericho to remain destroyed. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now, if you believe the word of the Lord... uh, And if you actually believe that God does what he says he's going to do, would you volunteer to rebuild Jericho? Not unless you didn't like your firstborn or your youngest. I'm the third, so dad, that'd been okay. (laughs) Scott, gone. 
less inheritance to share. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> or no, fewer people with whom to, insha- to share the inheritance. Well, it's interesting. We're told that uh, many, many years later, hundreds of years later, during the time of King Ahab, wicked King Ahab of Israel, who was married to Jezebel, a guy by the name of Hiel rebuilt Jericho. And here's what we read, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. In his days, Ahab, Ahab's days, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. The words of the Lord don't just fall on the ground and mean nothing. When the God speaks, he means what he says. When he says he'll do something, he will do it, even when it's hundreds and hundreds of years later. Don't mess with God. So there's the story. Now let's talk about it because it has surfaced all kinds of uh, very important uh, questions for us. First thing I want to point out is that God, not Joshua, conquered Jericho. Jericho fell to the Israelites not because of Joshua's brilliant military strategy or the strength of arms of the people of Israel. It fell because God fought on its behalf. Now, why is this important? It's important because in Romans chapter 13, 1, we are told if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If God's going to fight for us, who in the world can stand up to God? We can't lose. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, we are told, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when does God fight for us? He doesn't promise to fight for us when we are on uh, pursuing our own agenda or our own selfish ambitions, right? He doesn't say, I'm going to help you uh, enact your will. Whatever you want, I'm here for you. I'm a little genie in your life, and, and you're going to be able to get what you want. No, but he says, when you're on mission with me, when you're going about doing my will, I'll fight for you. And fighting for you doesn't mean that you will necessarily succeed according to the world. God might be fighting for you and and you die a martyr. But God's purposes will come to pass. And so uh, when you are seeking to root sin out of your life and grow in Christ-likeness, is God going to fight for you? Yes. When you're trying to Uh, combat evil in the world and promote good in the world, will God fight for you? Yes. When you're seeking to get the gospel out into the world and uh, and in your family and within your friend circles and it's met with resistance, is God going to fight for you? Yes. Yes, he will. And so I've put this uh, as an affirmation statement. I think I'm going to read it and then... Let's say it together. No enemy or obstacle can hold back the power of God. When I'm on mission with God, God fights for me. Let's say that together. Ready? No enemy or obstacle can hold back the power of God. When I am on mission with God, God fights for me. Amen. Second point that 
comes out of this text I see is that Jericho deserved what it got. And that's not my assessment. That's God's assessment. Jericho deserved what it got. Jericho uh, was a wicked city. And God destroyed it to punish its wickedness. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, we read this. God, through Moses, uh, many years before the conquering of Jericho, uh, Moses said this. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, them being the Canaanites, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. Right? Moses is saying, someday when you're when you are kicking the Canaanites out of the promised land, uh, you might be tempted to think God's rewarding me. He's rewarding us because we're pretty darn awesome. And Moses is saying, that is not why the Canaanites are being kicked out. The Canaanites are being kicked out because they have been wicked and God is judging their wickedness. And you're benefiting from that. And also, he's, he goes on to say... Um, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Uh, number one reason God's going to kick out the Canaanites, because they're wicked. Number two, because God promised to give this land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of, and that's who you are. And then there's a third reason we'll talk about in a little bit. How wicked were the Canaanites? Two places in the Bible where it's really talked about, Leviticus chapter 18, and I'll just summarize it. It talks a lot about the sexual perversion that was rampant in Canaan, incest, homosexuality. These are specifically spelled out in Leviticus 18. Bestiality. Uh, religious sexual prostitution. Basically, if you can imagine it with a sexual... Per don't. But if you can, that was happening. Then in Deuteronomy 18, and I'll read this one. Uh, in Deuteronomy 18, we see some of the, uh, the occult practices, even including sacrificing their children to the gods. Molech in particular, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. 
You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you're about to dispossess listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Boy, the occult has been on the rise in America for quite a long time. Stay away from that. Don't go reading your horoscopes. Do not go consult some fortune teller. Don't be playing with Ouija boards. Uh, and, and why in the world would we be entertaining ourselves with, with shows that celebrate witches? And right? No. That stuff is an abomination to the Lord. It certainly shouldn't be something we're practicing or uh, laughing about. The Canaanites got kicked out of the land as a result of this. And they weren't getting any better. This is another thing. I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and I said, man, I just keep hoping that America is going to pendulum back, right? We've just been rocketing toward secularism and uh, godlessness, and you know, sin is just proliferating in society. We've got to just, I got to believe we're going to pendulum back. And then I look at the Canaanites, and the Canaanites, uh, they didn't pendulum back. They just got worse and worse and worse. And Genesis chapter 15 is a record of God talking to Abraham 400 years earlier. And he says, I'm going to give your descendants this land, the land of Canaan, but not for 400 years because the sins of the Amorites is not yet complete. They're going to get worse. Now, they don't yet deserve to be vomited out of the land, but they will. And when that day comes, and only then will your descendants get this land. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Know for certain, Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's talking about their time in Egypt as slaves. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt, ten plagues, destruction of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here to the land of Canaan in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What I want you to understand is that uh, the Canaanites deserved what they got. God had judged them so wicked that they deserved to be destroyed in total. And God had done that before. Flood, whole earth, God said, I'm done, I'm starting over. Uh, he, he did that with Sodom and Gomorrah. Rains down fire from heaven. Boom. Totally. Do and do not mistake this. God says that same type of judgment is coming again upon the whole earth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, Romans. There is coming a day of judgment. It is appointed under man once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews. And so when the judgment comes, the wicked will be destroyed. So judgment is coming. It shocks us when that future day of judgment, or it shocks us when the, when the judgment of God breaks out in time and space now. And God does even judge now. He just doesn't uh, tell us in His Word exactly 
you know, what's happening, but individuals die because God's just enough. I'm taking your life. Uh, nations fall. God does judge wickedness. Here's another point that comes out of this story is that, um, do you know God is, God still judges wickedness through people. Now, we, we find it more palatable when God pours down fire from heaven or makes the ground swallow, you know, open up to swallow somebody. He, but here he is asking his people to take a sword and, thrush it and, and uh, thrust it through the flesh of another human being, and that's shocking to us. That should shock us. That's traumatic. And yet God does and still does execute his judgment upon evil through people. That's what government does, right? In Romans chapter... Uh, 7, or no, Romans chapter 13, we're told that government is a servant of the Lord executing God's judgment upon evil. Romans 13, 1, let every person, unless you don't like what your government is telling you to do, right? That's not what it says. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We know there is one exception. The exception is when the government tells you to directly disobey a command of God. And then, like the apostles, you say, who are we to believe? Or obey? You or God? Judge for yourself. Of course we obey God. But not when the government tells us to do something that we don't like, right? It's when the government tells us to do something God says, do the opposite. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority unless it's the except for the party you didn't vote for, right? No. For there is no authority except from God. And those, it doesn't mean that they're, everything they do is good and right. God allowed them. And those that exist have been instituted by God, even the communists, right? Even the governments that uh, use the power of the state to come down on the church and try to hinder the gospel. God's allowed it. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. There's a big warning in that, isn't there? And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, for the most part. And I think that's a general statement. But to bad would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good. You'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And Second Peter, I won't even read Second Peter chapter 2, 13, 14, basically the same thing. God executes his judgment against evil today through humans in, in government. So this wasn't unique, but it was limited uh, in time and place. Here's the third reason, the third and final reason God ordered the utter destruction of Jericho. God utterly destroyed Jericho to protect his people from contamination. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16, we read this. 
But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Here it is that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. So you sin against the Lord your God. God did not want his people to be polluted by the Canaanite culture. Now the zeitgeist today says all culture is morally neutral. There's no no culture is better than another culture. No religion is better than another culture. That's completely against the biblical teaching. The Bible's witness is some cultures promote wickedness in the world, and some cultures are better than other cultures, and some religions push people farther from God, not closer to God. So it's not correct to say all cultures are uh, you know, just sort of morally neutral. No. Look at their fruit. And so some cultures and some cultural practices uh, are not healthy and do not produce good fruit in the world. And the Canaanite culture, God had judged it so wicked, he wanted it taken off the face of the earth. Do you hear that? It's, by the way, that's what he says about all human society in the end. He has judged all human society so wicked, he's starting over and evil's going to be eradicated And unless you have been uh, saved by Jesus Christ and are being transformed by the Holy Spirit within you, you're not going. You're going to be taken out. And but but here's just sort of a preview of that. And he just says Canaanite culture has got become so corrupted, I it's all gone. And in the flood, God didn't say let's you know let's put take the innocents and put them out on a special high hill and let's try to preserve the good things about culture. He just took it all out. That's his prerogative as judge of the universe. Same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't say, I'm going to, you know, uh, save the little babies and the animals that are in Sodom. They just all got, they all got taken out. And that's what he does here. You kill them all. You destroy them all. You burn it all. Because I have, I have deemed it so corrupt. I don't want it touching my people and therefore polluting them. And that had happened not that long earlier when uh, the people of Israel rub shoulders with the people of Peor, and they got uh, enticed into the ritual, sexual sin of worshiping Baal, and the anger of God broke out upon his people, and thousands upon thousands died in an instant. See, God, these, our lives, what we do, matters to God. <laughs> and uh, God thinks in terms of evil and good, and he wants uh, he likes good, and he wants his people to be good, and, to, and he doesn't like evil, and he doesn't want it in our lives. And uh, now, we're going to see that this command to destroy the Canaanites was time-bound, and it was situation-specific, but I think that, uh, as Christians, we need to take seriously the, the pollutant in our culture that can affect us spiritually, right? There is a lot of wickedness in our culture, and we as Christians need to not just be ca- just 
casual and, and just, you know, bump up against it and suck it in like a big giant Slurpee. No, you know, we need to look at culture and say, that's, that's bad. That will morally pollute me. And God wants me to stay away from that, right? We have to do this all ongoing, all the time. And there's parts of society, in part of our, parts of our society that are polluting, spiritually polluting. We don't want them. Leviticus 18, I'm just going to read, listen to the language. It talks about the sinfulness was so bad with the Canaanites that the land, the Bible talks about the land vomiting them up. Do not make, this is Leviticus 18, verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land become, became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. What a picture. The, 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 more, the wicked conduct of the Canaanites made the land itself sick and it vomited the people out. And that's, yeah, we don't, we don't want that. The command to destroy the Canaanites was limited and time-bound. I like the way David Howard Jr. puts it. He says, Israel was not given a blank permission to do the same to any peoples they encountered at any time or in any place. It was limited to the crucial time when Israel was just establishing itself as a theocracy under God to protect Israel's worship and as well as to punish those specific peoples. Um, you and I are not given authorization by God to go out and and kill the wicked in society. Jesus was very clear to Peter, put, resheath your sword, right? Uh, my kingdom is not built by violence. It's built by proclaiming the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, that we can, be, uh, we can have our sins forgiven and be reunited with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So any attempt to use these texts in the Old Testament as authorization for God's people to be violent is wrong. Final point I want to, I see in this text is that the people of God gain what the wicked lose. So the Canaanites had possession of the promised land, and I believe they would have retained possession of that good land if they hadn't have been wicked. But through their wickedness, they lost what they had. And that is true of all people, right? It's through our wickedness that we lose, and people will lose, we, we lose life itself. But the people of God gain what the wicked has. Psalm 37, 27 to 29, turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, and He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And the Bible clearly says, in the end, the only people left standing will be the followers of Jesus Christ. And they will inherit the whole earth, the whole universe, 
And God, it, it's all coming to us. But if you're right now part of them and not part of us, if you're, if you're right now in the Canaanite camp, right, you're still part of the kingdom of gar- darkness, th- there's Rahab. The good news of this story is you can, like Rahab, be saved from the coming destruction. How do you do that? You switch sides. How do you switch sides? By repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus, God's Son, making Him Savior and Lord of your life. It's not complicated, but it's hard because it's an act of the will to get off the throne of your life and invite Jesus to come sit on it. That's how you switch sides. But when you do, all of a sudden you're part of the people of God. And the judgment that's coming doesn't fall on you, it falls on Jesus. And his shoulders are big enough that, to take it. Yes, it killed him, but then by the Spirit of God, he was brought forth from the grave and he lives today. He has conquered sin and death. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake... He, God, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Praise Jesus. So I have three big takeaways from from this message. Number one, when God fights for us, no enemy or obstacle can stand in the way. God fights for us when we are going about his will. Maybe that's God's big Uh, takeaway for you. But maybe it's this one. God will someday judge the wicked. The only way to escape the coming judgment is to be like Rahab and switch to God's side. We switch sides by repenting of our sins and making Jesus Christ Lord of our lives. Maybe that's for you. And if that's for you, there's nothing I want to do after today than talk to you. So please, Beeline it to me. I want to talk to you. Number three, maybe it's this. Eventually, all evil, and evil includes the moral evil and uh, the brokenness in our natural world and in our bodies that comes about through sin, all evil and those who do evil will be removed from our existence. When that day comes, the people of God will inherit all the earth Are you part of the people of God? If not, you can join today. Let's pray. God, we love your word. We learn from your word. We all need correction, instruction in righteousness, Lord. And so we, by faith, we we respond with yes to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.